Well, good evening. Welcome back in our study of Romans. And if you have your Bibles, by the way, and you'd like to follow along, we're going to work through Romans chapter 6. Before I get started, you know the usual housekeeping things. I think this number's on the bottom of your uh, handout as well. But if you, while we're teaching, if you have questions, text your questions to that number. And then I thought before we get started, we would begin with a little bit of a review because I want to frame Romans as a, as a deep book in the sense that it's just profound ideas. It's not like it's not difficult. It just requires a little thought, engages our brain to understand what the gospel is. And then as you move on, it's going to engage our heart and ultimately our hands as well. But it's good to frame up what chapter 6 is about. So let me give you a little bit of a review. This lesson, I told you before that the Apostle Paul would probably have a hard time getting hired in most churches today because he starts out by telling the gospel, and here's how he starts. Chapter 1, verse 18. He says, I need to tell you this first. The wrath of God is being revealed against all wickedness and unrighteousness. That's not how most sermons start, is it? But that's how the gospel starts. And so Paul goes on to tell a story that's not always popular. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. This gospel, this good news, this is what Paul taught all the time, was wildly popular. And it was wildly popular because it was true. It really resonated with people. He said, listen, we're not right with God. We are not. Our behavior can't be good enough to be right with God. And if you remember the first three chapters, he basically goes through and he says, let me just tell you why. Let me just be straight. Here's, here's how we act. And my my point to you is if you want to prove Romans 1 through 3, just pick up the newspaper any day you want to. And it it just literally reads like Romans chapter 1 through 3. He says, look, we have a problem. It's called sin problem. It's called a rebellion problem. It's called not being righteous or right with God. So that's what Paul talks about. And he says there's no behavioral justification. So at the end of chapter 3, he kind of sums it up like this. He says... So the wrath of God is being revealed, but now a righteousness from God, meaning, and this is a theological term, but we just take the theology out of it, a way to be right with God. Remember we talked about being judicially right with God, there are no warrants out for my arrest, and being relationally right with God, that we have peace with each other. He said there's a way to be right with God which is being made known. It comes through trust in Jesus Christ. Remember I told you the Greek word for faith, belief, trust, same word. We translate them differently in English, and I think that actually doesn't help us. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Let me just translate that in a better way. Comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who have faith. In other words, it's by faith from first to last. It's trust. There's no difference for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we all have this universal problem, but we're all justified or made right with God freely by his grace through the redemption that came from Jesus Christ. So he says we have a problem. It's called we are not right with God. We're in rebellion against God. It's this terminal condition we have called sin, which we'll talk a little bit about sin uh, in this lesson. He's going to talk a lot about that in chapter 6 and maybe a little differently than you've heard it before. Then this trust in Jesus Christ is how we can be made right with God. We talked about the idea of what then is this trust, because that becomes a big deal. Well, if trusting Christ or having faith in Christ or believing in Christ, same thing. But I think trust is a better word. If that's how we become right with God, then I kind of like to know about this faith. And if you remember, I use this example that I personally like, but I realize if you don't like mathematics, this is probably not a great example. So I'm looking for a better example. But think of faith as a vector. And in physics or mathematics, a vector is an entity, it's like a force. If you want to think about it, if you're going to push something like this, you have value. I mean, there's a certain amount of force being applied, but it's being applied in a specific direction. And so that's kind of what a vector is. It has value, it has a number, but it also has a direction. And so you can't split those two apart without changing what it actually is. And that's what faith is like. Faith has a value, and it has a direction. And the way we've characterized this is 
Faith as it's understood in the New Testament, and every time I want you read the word believe, belief, faith, trust in the New Testament, I want you to think this way. It has commitment and movement. It has commitment and movement. Let me give you an illustration because this is a key idea. Because if you don't understand faith this way, you're going to have major problems with the New Testament, with the Bible. Major theological problems. As a matter of fact, a lot of our problems with salvation, confusion about that, come from not understanding faith the way the New Testament understands faith. Give you an example. This happened to all of us. So you're working, and it's lunchtime, and you get together with a few uh, co-workers, and here's the conversation, and you know this happens. Hey, you want to go to lunch? Yeah. Where do you want to go? I don't know. Where do you want to go? <laughs> I don't know. Everything's fine with me. Well, how about this? Well, that's not fine with me. Oh, I don't care. I'll go anywhere. And so you stand around, and it's almost like the, the biggest strategic issue that you have, you know, that day at work is where are we going to go to lunch? Now, here's the point I want to make. Everybody standing there talking has a commitment. We are going to have lunch. My stomach is growling. We're all committed to having lunch. But we're standing around and we're talking about where we're going to go to lunch and just envision that this goes on and on and somebody looks at their watch and they said, oh, lunchtime's over. That was great, guys. I'll see you later. You know, I've got to get back to work. Everybody goes back to work. We had a lot of commitment, but nobody ever ate anything because there was no movement. And that's kind of the way faith is. Faith is not just the commitment, but it's also the movement. And so when you read faith in the Bible, you have to understand it in that way. It's not, oh, you have commitment, and then you should have movement. No, they're the same thing. That's the way to understand and harmonize the scriptures. Let me give you an example. Another example, and this is the one where we, where we trip into this idea of having theological problems. So, starting line of the race. You see this, gun goes off, everybody takes off, and then everybody sort of stops and starts shaking hands. And, you know, it's like, hey, that was great. Race is going to end sometime, but we got started, so let's go have some coffee. And uh, whenever the race ends, we'll be done. Well, that doesn't make any sense at all, does it? But we got started. We're in the race. And if you think about when we split faith and movement apart, and here's how we usually think of it is when we split faith and works apart as two different things, it's like saying, I have faith. I started the race. Okay, it's, that's enough for me. And I'll just be over here on the side when the race ends. We think of salvation that way sometimes. It's like, oh, I believe in Jesus Christ. I'll be over here living my life. Uh, when it's time for me to die, I'll be back, Jesus. I want that you know, one-way pass to heaven. All right, see you later. So I'm off over here living my life. It's like starting a race, and as soon as you cross the start line, you just wander off and go have a cup of coffee and wait for the race to end. That's because of, an, of a really defective idea of what believing is, of what faith is. It's like, oh, I've got the commitment, but I've got no movement. I haven't finished the race, so to speak. The scripture thinks of faith in that way, and that's, that's really a critical idea. In fact, you see uh, the example of Abraham, I mean, it's all over the scripture, but the example of Abraham is one where in James he talks about, you know, you saw that Abraham, faith and his actions work together and it makes a complete faith, in other words, real faith. James also says this, he says, uh, what good is it if you say you have faith faith, you also put that in quotation marks, you have belief, but you don't do anything. He says, can that kind of faith save you? Well, what his point is, is that's not faith. Faith that doesn't have works isn't faith at all. It's like an uh, example I like to use, and this is, I'm really hammering this home because I really want you to think about this in this way, otherwise the, the Bible is not going to make much sense. You're going to see all kinds of problems in the Bible. Faith is commitment and movement. It's like a trip. We're going to go on vacation. Our family's going on vacation shortly, and we're going to pack up our car, and we know where we're going to go. You know, we are committed to this vacation. But we actually have to get in the car and go somewhere to get there. And if you want to think about the Christian life, you want to think about faith, think about it like this. It's a road. You not only have to 
have a specific road. You've got a commitment to get somewhere, but you actually have to go travel the road. Well, faith is like that. It's like that road. In other words, it's not teleportation instantly to the end. It's the path. And let me show you how the scripture talks about this. I'm just going to pick a variety of things out of the scripture so you see how this ties things together. Here's Jesus speaking, and he said, If anyone would come after me, in other words, if you want any part of me, what must you do? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You notice you've got two things here. You have intense commitment. Take up your cross, which means you're going to die. You're going to crucify yourself, so to speak. And Paul's going to talk about that here in a minute. But is that it? I believe you, Jesus. I've crucified myself. I'm with you. He says, no, now follow me. In other words, you see this action. This faith is commitment and it's movement. Here's the, the book of Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. And what? Well, let's just stop there. Let's just throw off all that sin and that commitment to sin. Let's have a commitment to Christ. No. And let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. In other words, do you see all the movement that goes with this? It's not just commitment, and it doesn't say, I want you to do this and this. It's like, no, this is what following Christ is like. I'll give you another example. Uh, Philippians 3. Not that I've already obtained all this, Paul says, or already been made perfect. In other words, I haven't achieved the goal yet, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me. I mean, all this language, do you hear all this movement language this faith in action language. And that's very characteristic of all of the scriptures when it talks about faith. So, that's, a, that's the end of our review. So that's kind of a long review. But that's what Paul talks about in the first five chapters. We have a sin problem, the solution is faith. But it's important to understand what he means when he says faith, belief, or trust in Christ. He's talking about a commitment and a movement because we tend to want to separate those things, and we think of faith only as the commitment. Okay, so chapter 6, I want to talk about sin for grown-ups, and I don't mean I'm going to teach you how to sin better. What I mean is, is we're talking about the gospel and not the Sunday school version. I mean, it, there's nothing wrong with teaching our kids, Jesus loves you, wants to be Lord of your life, and invite him into your heart. I'm fine. That's, that's a great thing in, you know, in Sunday school. It's not a great thing for grown-ups. That's, that's not a grown-up understanding of the scriptures. You notice it's very transactional. It's very temporary. It's very much the, what a child's mind can understand. Paul in Romans says, look, this is a grown-ups. I'm going to tell you what faith really is, and now he's going to say, I'm going to tell you what sin really is. Because where he's gotten us is this. He says, we have a sin problem, and faith is the answer, and you say, that's great. But Paul, I have a question. Does that mean then, what am I going to do with the sin that continues in my life? And he's going to break that into two pieces, and he starts in chapter 6, verse 1, and he answers the, the most obvious question. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? And I love the way it's translated, because it's translated exactly. Should I continue sinning? Should I go on with my old life the way it was. Remember, old life, major terminal sin problem. He says, now I've got this faith, so shall we go on with our old life? And he says, absolutely not. But here's the curious thing. Listen to his answer as to why not. He doesn't say, well, you can't do that. Jesus died on the cross for you. Don't you feel bad about continuing your old life? Yeah, and that, that's not his answer at all. It's like, oh, yeah, I know, you're, you're saved, you're already going to heaven, but just don't you think it'd be good to do some good deeds? That's not his answer. His answer is really very interesting. Listen to what he says. He says, absolutely not. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? 
Or don't you know, and this is Paul being very polite, do you not understand that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Not a different life, a new life. For we know, I'm skipping to verse uh, 6 here, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with so we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died is free from sin. That's an interesting answer. Can I go on living my old life now that I have trust in Christ? And Paul said, that question doesn't even make sense. He said, you don't understand. He said, your old way of life, your old self is dead. It's not changed. It's not reformed. It's not behavior modified. It's dead. He says, this doesn't make any sense at all. You don't live there anymore. Give you an example. Uh, many years ago, we moved, and we used to live in uh, Quail Creek here in North Oklahoma City. And this would be like if I went back to our old house and I mowed the yard. Now, I'm sure that Bill Roshkob, who lives in that house now, would probably appreciate that very much if I came back in there. But if I decided to go back to the old house, went in, sat down, made myself a sandwich, you know, got a little tired, watched the TV, go to bed... Bill probably wouldn't appreciate that anymore. Nice a guy as he is, he'd probably say to me, you know, Terry, I hate to break this to you, but you don't live here anymore. This is not your house. What are you doing here? Well, that's kind of the answer that Paul gives, isn't it? He says, why can we not go on living the way we lived before? Because that guy's dead. He died. You don't live there anymore. You can't continue to go there. You can't continue to do those things because you don't live there anymore. In fact, you have a movement in a different direction. Look at this passage in Colossians. Same idea. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Because Why? Because you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Goes on. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, that old guy, the old man, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Yeah, the God's wrath was revealed against the old self, the sinful me, the one who was doomed. But now I trust in God. He said, good, then you died to that. He said, you used to walk in those ways. That was when you were alive over there, but now you're dead, and you are a new creation and a new person. That's an interesting idea. If you stop and think about it, it's not a clean-cut idea, is it? It's like, whoa, that's not the answer I wanted. I wanted kind of a rule, like, well, you can't do that because of this, or you're no longer allowed to do this or that. He says, it's a completely new person. In other words, you died and now you live again. And I really like you to think about that from this point of view. And I know we've said this a lot, uh, but it's really very true, is Jesus didn't come to make you a better person. Jesus came to make you a new person. And this is exactly what the gospel is. Jesus didn't come with a new self-help manual that said, I'm going to show you how to change your behavior and fix all your problems. He said, here's your problem, you. You have a terminal condition, and we just need to let that guy die. And I'm going to raise you to life, and we're going to make a new person. We talked today in one of the men's groups, and I and used this phrase, and I really like this. I think about this a lot. I have to remind myself of this a lot. It's trusting in Christ means that Jesus is not trying to make me a better man, better husband, better father, better friend. He's trying to make me a new man, new woman. In other words, not a better version of myself, a new version of myself. That's very unique idea to Christianity. And if you're having a hard time getting your head around that, let that soak for a little bit, because that's exactly what the gospel says. It says we are not able to be rehabilitated. We are going to be recreated. Does that make sense? That's Paul's answer about why you can't, we can't continue to live 
continue to sin, just continue to do the things we used to. He says, you can't do it. You just don't live there anymore. That old guy's dead. So that's not you anymore. You actually are being transformed. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Remember, consider yourself then dead to those old ways and alive in Christ. Don't offer, stop offering the parts of your body to sin as instruments of what sin wants to do with it. Rather, offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. Sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. And so he's moving into his second metaphor. First metaphor is, I want you to think of the Christian life as dying to your old self and being raised in newness of life. Not changing your behavior, not getting on the roller coaster of, okay, I'm going to fix this. I'm not a patient guy, but I'm going to become more patient. Well, now I find myself to be uncompassionate, so I'm going to be more compassionate. Oh, no, I just picked up a stealing habit. Well, I'm going to get rid of the stealing habit. You know, how many of you have lived on that self help, self-improvement, you know, I'm going to make myself worthy of Christ, going to behave myself into that. We sometimes think that that goes with faith somehow. That doesn't even, that doesn't even remotely go with faith. Faith is a recreation of who we are. It's a trust in Christ. And so that's his answer. He says, you're going to die, you're going to live. But then he's going to answer a second question. And the second question is really specific. All right, I hear you, Paul. Trusting in Christ means that old guy is dead. I'm a new creation. I'm going a different direction. I'm all about being a different person. I'm a new man in Christ. He is creating. His spirit is creating a new person in me. But here's the catch. I still commit some sins. I'm not perfect. What are we going to do with that? And he moves right into that next. He says the exact same uh, form. He says, what then? What should we say then? Shall we commit sin? I like this translation. Now he's not talking about, can I continue to live the old way? He goes, no, I'll tell you why. That guy's dead. Well, what about committing sins? We all commit sins. The blood of Christ covers my sins. Shall we commit sins because I've got all this grace to cover it? Again, he says, absolutely not. But again, not for the reason that you might think. Because the scripture doesn't say this. If you commit sin, up, oh, well, sorry, you lost it. Your salvation's gone. Nor does it say, oh, commit all the sins you want. The blood of Christ covered it. Christ died for all your sins forever, for then, for the past, for the future, etc. So commit whatever sins you want. Scripture doesn't say either one of those things. Those are both false. What does he say? Why then, why then is what's the issue with committing sins? He says, don't you realize, again, same language, don't you understand that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you're slave to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to a right relationship with God, righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching with which you were entrusted, You've been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness instead. And then the imperative. He said, I'm putting this in human terms. In other words, I'm using a metaphor of slavery here. I put this in human terms because you're kind of hard to understand this. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity, now offer them as slavery to holiness. So let's talk about committing sins for just a second. The scripture understands sin in a different way uh, than you sometimes are taught. Just like we sometimes think of faith as something I have, it's a commitment, it's a belief, it's an idea, but not something I do, those are deeds. And we said, no, no, the scripture understands those as the same thing. Faith is a vector, it's commitment and movement. You got movement, they don't have faith. You got commitment, you don't have faith. You have commitment and movement, you have faith. Sin we tend to think of as an act. And that's true. I did this and it was wrong. I told a lie. I did this. Or I didn't do that. I didn't forgive you. I didn't, you know, I wasn't patient, kind, whatever. We tend to think of sin as actions. That's true. 
but that's not how Scripture thinks of sin. Sin is not only an act that you do, it is a condition that you have. In other words, sin, like faith, is commitment and movement. Sin can be an action. It also is a condition that I have. Use this example also today, and I think it's a, it's a good way to think about it. It'd be like this. Paul says, if you think of sin as symptoms, as actions, it's like going to the doctor, and you say to the doctor, it really hurt. oh, it hurts when I raise my arm this high. And the doctor says, then don't raise your arm that high. You go, thank you very much. Yeah, see the receptionist on the way out? That'll be a $50 copay. Great, come back if you've got any other problems. That's not exactly what you wanted to hear, is it? When you think about sin as an action and overcoming committing sins, that's what we're doing. Well, I, I've told a lie today. Don't tell any more lies. Oh, thank you. That's really helpful, isn't it? And you find that's not very helpful, is it, to the Christian life? The, scripture understands sin as a condition as well. It might be good to go to the doctor and say, oh, hurts when my arm goes that high. He says, oh, I think you may have an underlying condition. Does this also hurt? Yeah, that does too. Oh, well, let me tell you what we need to do. We need to cure your underlying condition. And then, oh, yeah, then you'll be able to raise your arm, and then you'll be able to do this. We're going to cure the underlying condition. That's the way the Scripture thinks about sin. Sin's not just an action. It's a condition that we have. Here's an example uh, that I like to use in that regard. Is I want you to think about, like we talked about faith being that road or that journey that you're taking. It's a commitment to go to that destination and it's movement along that road. All right? Sin, committing sin, is, is understood really well in that context. Example I like to use is this. My, this is just a personal uh, testimonial here. One of my great weaknesses in life, Girl Scout cookies. So I know that my weight is going to go up between January and March of every year because that's Girl Scout cookie cycle. It's just a given. What I weigh in January, add many, many pounds, and that is what I will weigh at March. Thank God they don't sell them year-round. That's all I can say. But I have even thought of going to other cities because I'm assuming they sell them at different times in different cities around the country. And so I traveled a lot in my business, and I thought, you know, if I timed this right, I could have a year-round supply of Girl Scout cookies. But the Lord was gracious and prevented me from doing so because otherwise it would have been hopeless. So here's my question to you. So get on the scales in March and go, whoa, up a little bit of weight. Which cookie made me gain weight? Which cookie was it? It's, you can't answer that, really, can you? It's hard to give a real black and white answer. That's exactly Paul's answer here. And he said, should we continue to commit sins? Because we do. Does Jesus' forgiveness cover it? He says, yeah, but you don't understand. He said, you commit sins enough, you are a slave to sin. So which cookie is it that made me gain weight? Don't know, but I'll tell you this. You keep eating those cookies, you're going to gain weight. Does that make sense? At some point, I've gained weight. It's also like being fit. I'll turn around, I'll use a positive example. This is not one I can relate to, like Girl Scout cookies, but nevertheless, which workout made you fit? You know, which exercise routine, which time when you went to the Y or did it, which one of those was the one that made you healthy? Well, I don't know. You can't answer that. But I know that I've done them for years and years, and consequently, I am healthy. Do you see where I'm getting? That's what Paul's saying about sin. We commit sin... And his answer as to the issue with that is this. If you offer yourself to sin, you become a slave to sin. Well, which one was it, Paul? Which, you know, which sin is it that, that basically made me a sinner? He said, you don't answer that. In fact, the Bible never answers that question as to how many sins can I do before I'm not saved anymore? Any more than the Bible answers this question, how many good deeds do I need to do in order to be saved? Wrong question. The Bible never answers either one of those questions. But it does say this, is that if we sin, we become slaves to sin. And it says that if we offer ourselves to righteousness, we have faith in God, we will do good deeds. That's kind of Paul's answer 
in a nutshell as to the idea of faith and sin and what the gospel means. And now I'd like to move on and actually apply that to a couple of really specific questions, but I want to pause and make sure we understand these ideas. This is the grown-up gospel. This is what the gospel's really about. And if you think about faith in this way and sin in this way, my prediction is this. You're going to see it all over the New Testament. You go, yep, there it is again. That's, yep, that's exactly what the scripture means. It's going to make the scripture make sense when you think of faith and sin in those ways. But let me pause. What questions do we have? If Christ did not bring a self-help message, if he brought a message of a new self, then do you think it's dangerous when leaders in today's Christianity focus on books and self-help conferences? Well, that's, you know, far be it for me to criticize what people are doing, and I certainly can't judge their motives. I know that anything that would lead people to believe that the gospel is about your behavior. Romans 6 says this, behavior matters. Should I, can I go on sinning? Can I go on living my self-centered lifestyle? And Paul goes, absolutely not. You, you don't understand. Well, Paul, can I just go ahead and keep committing sins because the blood of Christ covers them? He goes, absolutely not. Behavior matters, so please don't misunderstand me. But anything that turns the gospel or makes you think that the good news of Jesus Christ or having faith in Jesus Christ is really fundamentally about your behavior and modifying your behavior is not doing us a service. The motives of the people, I'm not going to judge people's motives. I'm just saying anything that we do and communicate to you that makes you think, I got to do better. I got to try harder. I got to act better to be accepted by God. That's not good. So to that extent, I think it is, is not helpful to us. If I was saved, but I lost my faith for a time, do I need to be resaved or baptized? Yeah, let's talk about uh, that whole idea of salvation. I'm actually going to get to that in just a minute, so let me just defer that for a second. Let's go on to the questions then, because we'll, we'll get to this. There are a couple of big questions that people have argued about for a long time, and if you have a lack of clarity about it, I'd like to bring at least a little bit of clarity, a grown-up clarity. I don't mean a law of Moses clarity. Thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do this. Tell me exactly how many sins I can do and exactly how many good deeds I can do. In the words of Paul, God forbid. That is not what the gospel is about. But some clarity in terms of what do I need to know? Here's two questions. Number one, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? This is actually a little more complicated than you think. Because if you think of faith as something that I have, belief, you're going to get into a lot of trouble in the scriptures. Uh, you're going to think salvation is something and then have to really work hard hard to explain away a lot of other scriptures. So think of it this way. Sometimes we think of being saved like static electricity. You know, you have an encounter with God, you touch it and boom, pop, there's this electricity that goes and like, okay, I got it. That's not what salvation is like. That's not what faith is like. Faith is like grabbing hold of a power line. It's not static electricity. It's going to shock you. It's going to change you. Well, that would kill you. But go with me on this metaphor, okay? We're just going to kill the old self. You grasp like grabbing hold of a power line. It's like, not only do I have the electricity, I am energized. I continue to have electricity. Faith is commitment and movement. So you tend to want to think about it. Sometimes we think about, what do I need to do to be saved? And sometimes our answers, and again, please don't take this wrong, but I want to be very direct with you, is... You just need to ask Jesus into your heart. You just need to believe in Jesus. You just need to pray this prayer. You don't just do anything. You actually need to trust Christ. And here's what that means. It does not mean I'm going to shake hands with Jesus and let go and go on my way and say, I'm a friend of Jesus. I've met him. I want you to think about it this way. And this is very vivid to me. Any of you who have little kids, or you know, when your kids were little, you're going to know this. You're going to really recognize this. When our kids were little, they were pretty rambunctious boys. And so when you would come to a street or something, when they were toddlers, you would reach down and you would take their hand. All right? But when you took their hand, you wouldn't just hold their hand because they're going to let go. They're going to dart into traffic, you know. Oh, a squirrel. I'll t yeah, I mean, you can't 
That's not the way it goes. It's not like we just sort of held hands and like, hey, we're here, great, good, try not to get run over. You know, it's, you not only take their hand, but I would wrap my fingers around their wrist. You know, you felt doing this? Give them a couple fingers, and then you're wrapping your fingers around their wrist. I've got hold of you, and you cannot get loose. And we're going to cross the road together, and there's not a chance in the world you're going to let go. We are bound together for the, for the duration of this little trip. That's what salvation is like. Salvation is not just a handshake. It's not static electricity. It's that ongoing guidance. It's that ongoing power. So what does it take to be saved? It means believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me translate that. Better word for us in English is trust in Jesus Christ. Have faith in Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? Have a commitment and a movement. That's what it means to be saved. It's that simple and it's that complicated. Does that make sense? That rules out some things that are very defective understanding of salvation. And that is, I need some kind of momentary commitment that has no movement. That's not faith. That's not salvation. Okay? Let's go on to the harder question. How can I be sure that I'm saved? And this gets to the question earlier. Is all right, so I trust Jesus Christ. I have the commitment. I have the movement. I am following Christ, as Jesus said in Luke 9.23. Follow me. So I have commitment. I have movement. I have commit sin. I repent of sin. How do I do that? I want to talk to you about another image, and this is a metaphor that is useful, I think, in understanding this idea and answering this question. Show you the Christian life in this way. We talked about being on a road. And so this is, your, this is the image of your Christian life, is you have made a commitment to go to Jesus Christ, and you are walking on the road. Okay? You are walking down this road to Jesus Christ. So here's the interesting thing. It, it's not about what mile marker you're on. It's about what road you're on. Does that make sense? And we get confused. When you think of faith as commitment and movement are two different things, if you think belief and works are different things, major problem, because you've got to figure out how far you need to get down this road to be saved. In other words, if in the Christian life, if I look at my wife and I say, she's a really good Christian, and what do I mean by that is, she's at mile marker 50. I mean, she not only has the commitment, but she has movement, she has good works, she has the fruit of the Spirit. She's at mile marker 50. Well, here's my problem. I'm struggling along about mile marker 6, all right, personally. And so here's my issue. Am I saved? How do I know I'm saved? Because I can look at her way up there in the distance and I go, I'm such a miserable Christian compared to her. I'm such a miserable example. I committed sin. I stepped off the road and I've not gone as fast as somebody else. Does that make sense? There is nowhere in the Bible, absolutely nowhere that it's going to answer that question, what mile marker do I need to get to? That is not even a question in the Christian faith. Here's the question is, what road do I need to be on? And by the way, as long as we're talking about this, let me clear up one uh, thing you're going to hear a lot of, and if it's ever troubled you, we're going to put it to rest right now. I'm a Christian, and I'm, you know, I'm committed, I'm following Christ, but I still have issues in my life. I have sin. I have, you know, I, the natural man is still manifesting itself. I commit this sin. I repent. You know, in other words, I'm being created into a new being. But my neighbor is not a Christian, and my neighbor behaves so much better than I do. So how in the world can I possibly go to heaven and my neighbor doesn't? Here's the simple answer. Your neighbor is not on the same road that you are. Your neighbor may be at mile marker 50, and you may be at mile marker 6, but you are not on the same road. Do you understand what I'm saying? That road leads to death. Your road leads to life. Your neighbor is just headed down the road faster than you are. And their life looks pretty good, but they still have a terminal sin condition. They're on the wrong road. 
That's why that whole comparison, and you're going to hear a lot of people who aren't believers say, well, I act better than you do. You're a Christian. How can you say that I'm going to hell? It's the road. It's not the mile marker. It's never been about how good a person you could be. Does that make sense? Well, when we think about how do I know then that I am saved, what road are you on? Do you understand what I'm saying? Most of the time we wrestle with this because my behavior is not good enough. Well, fortunately for you and me, that's never been the issue, has it? Well, I commit sin. I step off the path. I know. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Step back on the road and continue. That's called repentance. It's called, literally, it means to turn around. I mean, that's what that word literally means, and really pretty good. So I'm walking on the road, and I sin. I commit a sin. I step off the road. Well, repent. Step back on the road and said, that's not who I am. This is who I am. I am committed to go there. I am moving. I am following Jesus Christ. You may step off the road many times. Here's what Paul says in the beginning of chapter 6. Can I continue to sin? Can I continue to live my old lifestyle? Of course not, because you know what? It's not this road. You used to be on that road. Let me give you a great illustration. This is Ephesians saying the same thing. Ephesians chapter 2 says this. You used to be dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the way of this world. What's that saying? It said you used to be on this road, self-centered lifestyle. I'm a good person, by the way. Great person, do good deeds, you know, pet my dog, give money to charity, etc. I am dead of a terminal condition because this road leads to death. He said, you used to walk on that road, but not anymore. You are on a different road. You trust in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? I am committed to a different destination, and I am moving on that road. I hope this metaphor helps you. When Paul says, can I continue? And all, he says, wait a minute. What do you mean? Can I get to Jesus by that road? You know, can I take off headed for L.A. and hope to end up in Chicago? Well, what a dumb question. And that's kind of what he's saying is, what a dumb question. No, of course not. It's just the laws of physics. That road leads to death. This road leads to Christ. Can I still walk that road? Of course not. His second question is, but wait a minute, Paul. What happens when I step off? He says, here's your issue. When you step off, step back on. Because if you commit enough sin, you become a slave to sin. That's like saying, here's my road, and so I take a step, and I take another step, and I take another step, and at some point I eat enough cookies that I gained weight. At some point I took enough steps that I'm not actually on that road anymore, am I? I think I'm actually going there, not there. That's his answer. He says, that's the problem with committing sin. When you do, turn around and get back on the road. Because you take enough of those steps, you're not going there anymore. Is that helpful? That's, that's the understanding. So how do I know that I'm saved? Are you on the road? Am I committed and am I following? That's my simple answer for how do I know that I am saved. That's my metaphor that I hope it's useful to you to think about what Paul's saying in Romans chapter 6. He kind of puts it this way. This is the road idea. He said, what benefit did you reap at that time, the time you used to walk this old way, from the things you're now ashamed of? Remember the things that old man used to do, all that self-centered stuff, all that living for me? He says, those things result in death. In other words, the end of that road is death. I don't care how fast you go. I don't care how good you look doing it. The end of that road is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, in other words, you're walking another road now. The benefit you reap leads to holiness. The result is eternal life because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You see his conclusion? And so if, if that's helpful to you, you're going to see that throughout all the Scripture. How, how good do I have to be? Wrong question. Well, can I continue to live any way I want? Yeah, wrong question. I want to get on this road. And what does it mean? It means to have faith in Jesus Christ. I'm committed and I'm moving down this road. The problem with this is usually not you and me. 
We don't usually ask that question in terms of what do I need to know that I'm saved, but how can I know that you're saved? And particularly somebody we care about. How can I know that that person is saved? I'm worried that they are not. They used to have the appearance, and here's the thing, is we don't know the heart of people, so we don't know. But we know enough to be concerned about people, to be helpful to people, to gently and lovingly restore people, to confront people sometimes. But the question was, if I have faith in Christ, can I stop having faith in Christ? Let me translate that in. If I've been committed and moving, I have trust in Christ and I'm walking down this road, can I get off of this road? Well, this is going to depend just a little bit on your understanding of Scripture overall. But it ends up in pretty much the same place. Let me give you three, three answers to this question. The Reformed answer, the Calvinist answer to this question is, no, you really can't, and here's why. Because God's sovereignty is such that if you are on that road, he will ensure that you stay. In other words, you will not get off that road. In other words, the elect, sometimes we use the word predestined, better word is those who are elect, who are chosen of God, will indeed persevere to the end. Another position, and this one you're probably really familiar with is, yes, you can, and you walk, and if you veer off and you have every indication that you're not following Christ, then you didn't really have faith to start with. You were never on the road. Third way of understanding this, and this is more of an Arminian or Wesleyan way of understanding it, is this. And this is, this is my view of what the Scripture teaches, but I'm really comfortable as long as we're in agreement about what it means to follow Christ and what salvation really is. is yes, I believe that you can have the commitment and the movement, and I don't think there is anything that can knock you off that road. Jesus said, I know those whom the Father has given me, and nothing can, can snatch them out of my hand. And that's true. Satan can't push you off that road. Nobody can take that away from you. Nobody can put up a fake detour sign and make you go off that road. There is no force powerful enough to keep you from doing that, with one exception. If you believe that God gave us enough free will to respond to his grace, in other words, to choose, as you know, Moses said to the people, choose this day, life or death, which will you do? Joshua, choose this day whom you will serve. Right? If God, if you understand your theology is such that God gave us enough will to be able to choose, and I respond to his grace and say, I trust in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? I'm on this road and I'm moving down this road. I trust in Jesus Christ. There is no evidence that I can find that your will goes away. That you cannot say, I no longer am going on this road. I'm going here. Let me give you a great example. Here's what happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, right relationship with God. Serpent comes along. Did the serpent pull him off the course? No. He just told him a lie. He just said, you know what? You eat this apple, you can be like God. Eve looked here, looked there, and said, you know, I think I trust him, God. I think I believe what he said, so I'm going to eat this apple, and I'm going this way. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is I think the only thing that can get you off that path is you, is me because nothing else is powerful enough. God is capable enough to keep us on that road. I can step off that road and repent, meaning turn around and step back on, and God says, Jesus Christ said, I covered every sin you will ever do, except the rebellion that you want. In other words, you are free to rebel against God. So my answer to that question is, can you be on that road and leave it? I believe that you can. I think that's very consistent with Scripture. Other theologies are going to argue in a, in a little bit different way that no, if you're really on that road, you can't get off. Either way, the answer is the same. Faith means commitment and movement. But there's the assurance of salvation. You just answer this question. Have I, here's where we have trouble. I don't feel like I've been good enough. I'm not sure I've been saved. The only question is, do you trust Jesus Christ and are you following him? Yeah, but not well. I'm only at mile marker two. That's all right. Fortunately, that is not the question. 
Are you on the road? Are you following? Yes, I follow him. I didn't follow him well yesterday, but today I'm on the road. Great. Get on the road, stay on the road. Does that make sense? That's the grown-up answer to that. It's not black and white. I'm not going to say, well, count them up. You did 15 sins yesterday? Oh, sorry, you just missed it. 14 was my limit, you know? That's not. That's a child's way of looking at the gospel, and that's not the gospel. The gospel says, look, we're grown-ups. You know what trust is. Now go out there and live a life that looks like you trust me, that you follow me. I know you're going to step off the path, and I paid for that already. Now step back on and follow me. There's great freedom in Christ, tremendous freedom. Make sense? That's the good news. And you might say, gosh, it sounds kind of complicated. Actually, it's not, because here's the bad news. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, and there was no way we could walk far enough down that road. There was no way we could even find that road. But Jesus did it for us, and he said, I paid the price, I paved the road, now take my hand and let's go. And you do. And it's like a toddler. I'm crossing the road with my kid, and they'll jerk off, want to go this direction. Nah, come on back. This is where we're going. No, we're not going there. That's not safe for you. We're going here. And that's you and me, isn't it? And over time, you stay on that road, and we become more and more like Jesus Christ and closer and closer. That's how you know you're safe. Am I committed to following Christ? Right here, right now, today. And if your answer to that is yes, then... I think the scripture teaches then you are following Christ. You are saved. If the answer is no, I don't trust you. I trust somebody else. I think then that's a pretty obvious answer to me because the only, only way to be right with God is trust in Jesus Christ. Okay? All right. Those are the big questions, and here's the thing. I want you to keep this in mind, this image. Well, not this image because that looks like a long, lonely road. Think about a road where you get to travel it together. You get to travel it with the assurance of the ending. You get to travel it knowing that you'll never have a breakdown that will keep you from getting to the end of the road. Uh, you get to travel it in company with all these other pilgrims, and you get to be singing while you're doing it. I mean, that's it. The question I have for you, though, is, is that your road? And, and you get to respond to that. Jesus said, I paved it, I found it, I've made it for you, and I will guide you there. Do you want to come or do you not want to come? And if your answer is, I'm not on that road, great time to get on it. And if you say, I've stepped off that road, turn around, come back to the road. He paid for your detour, just get back on the road. That's the great news of the gospel. The great news of the gospel is not, I crossed the starting line, now I'm just waiting to die. Great news of the gospel is I'm on the road, I'm following Christ, and I much more nearly and dearly look like Christ all the time. Okay? That's your, that's your assignment this week. Every day, every day, I mean this seriously, I'm not joking. Every day when you get up, you say, today, I trust what Jesus Christ said. He is who he said he is. He can do what he said he can do. He can transform me into a new man, into a new woman, not just a better one, I'm not on that silly self-help cycle of trying harder, do better, do better. Oh, you never do good enough. Forget that. He's going to make me a new man, a new woman today, and I'm going to follow him today. At the end of the day, you just say, Lord, here's how we did. And you know what? I stepped off, and I want to get back on. You do that every morning and night, and you'll be surprised at how your life will be transformed. Every day, you start over on the road. Okay? So go with God, get down the road, and it's not a race. Look back for me at mile marker six, all right? <laughs> Thanks, guys.